Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another fantastic day, another fantastic interview. I've got Nisha Modi with me. Nisha is a lady who has had her own challenges in her life and is here on my show to educate me about her unique way of healing and especially the, her, her focus on social justice as part of healing. And that take on things intrigued me from the word go. So I'm dead excited to have Nisha here. Nisha, welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, an absolute pleasure, absolute honor to have you here. Social justice, uh, God, so much that we that we could do with that. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, and that is now completely unrelated to the sheer fact that in, in three days, the civil war will break out in your, in your country. <laughs> um, <is> that. <laughs> apart from that, hey, you know, and the, the looting and the rioting that is sort of has become standard, at least as far as the international press is concerned, mm -hmm. because that's here in New Zealand. Um, how's America? Oh yeah, it's burning. Cool, fine, <laughs> good. <laughs> and I hope, I hope that uh, that the old adage is true. If it bleeds, it leads uh, in the in the news cycle. Uh, hopefully, mm. we only see a very distorted view of what is happening with you guys. But I mean, uh, social justice is an issue and I'm intrigued. How is that topic of social justice and healing linked in your story? How did it all start? Sure, that's a great question. So I've been interested in social, social justice more and more over the past probably 10 to 12 years. Um, I've always kind of had that idea that, you know, everything should be equal, people should have equal access to things. Um, but I also grew up as a daughter of Indian immigrants. I, I was born and raised in um, Chicago in the US. And um, I still had certain views based on things that my parents said, um, especially as being um, a South Asian immigrant or daughter of immigrants. Um, you know, a lot of Asian Americans are considered what they call like the model minority, where um, they're seen as, in terms of the hierarchical, like racial ladder, higher than people who are Black or Latinx. And um, I always kind of, I guess, believed this because that's kind of just what I grew up hearing that, you know, Asian Americans, you know, they would be doctors and engineers and it wasn't as common to see that in the Black and Latinx community. Um, and I started realizing a little after college how problematic this was because there are a lot of different stories to how we all as immigrants arrived in the United States. And a lot of that is, well, there are a lot of similar struggles in terms of oppression, in terms of discrimination, in terms of, you know, just civil rights in general, and all of us being oppressed and blocked in some way from having equal rights. 
Um, there are differences in how we came here and immigration patterns and laws and policies. And while I'm not an expert in that area, I do know enough that um, while Asians were blocked from coming to the United States for, I think, about 40, 50 years, when they were allowed to come in in the mid-60s, um, they usually were trying to bring skilled workers, people that wanted to get their master's degrees. Like, my, for example, my father came to get his master's degree in engineering, where, you know, the reason that the majority of Black people are in the United States is because of slavery. And um, in terms of Latinx, especially those from Mexico, um, they came as labor, you know, for, um, and they still work is labor um, in, you know, in farms and whatnot. And um, while there's been a lot of like, I guess, you know, advancement in terms of, you know, all races being in all different types of professions, there still is that origin story that affects people's perceptions of different races. And it also affects, you know, how we treat each other. Um, and one thing I always try to remind myself is that um, Asian American civil rights would not exist if it weren't for the African American civil rights movement in the 60s. They paved the way for Asian Americans to also fight that fight. And um, while there's this idea of the model minority. I think a lot of people need to understand that we wouldn't actually have a lot of the rights we have if it wasn't for black people, you know, starting that, starting that fight. Um, so in terms of healing, it's, I think really interesting because I see a lot of the challenges in my life, very, very related to certain cultural norms within the South Asian community. And I can even dig deeper in terms of my religion, in terms of caste, like there's so many different intersections if you get deep. And then there's also patriarchy and sexism. And this has shaped me who as who I am and also shaped me through the lens of being a daughter of South Asian immigrants, specifically who um, my parents worked extremely hard and in working extremely hard did not really think about mental health. Still mental health, getting help from a therapist is very stigmatized within the community because there's this, I think, sense of pride that no, we work hard and we made it. Like we, you know, if we did it, why can't black people do it? You know, there's that mentality that is, is very misinformed and I think problematic because, um, you know, we've all had our own struggles and we all have our own different stories. So well, where healing comes into that is, we need to kind of address these beliefs that we've had about ourselves, that we need to burn ourselves out and kill ourselves working and um, to like, quote unquote, succeed. Um, I don't think success is just financial. I think it's emotional. I think it's um, trying to heal our lineage or ancestry. Um, it's looking at intergenerational trauma, how trauma is passed down from past generations, and I'm not just saying with my parents, I'm saying generations and generations before them, you know, India was a colonized country, colonized by the British, and it wasn't, you know, free until 1947. So, you know, that wasn't really that long ago, just like the, the civil um, African-American civil rights movement wasn't really that long ago, you know, it was just, you know, my mom was born in 1947. So um, it's still within her lifetime, you know, so I think that there are a lot of ties into how much people have been colonized, how much they've been oppressed or stolen or used for labor and not properly recognized and like ultimately profiting, you know, um, certain people. And um, that affects people's mental and emotional health. 
you know, people want to look at like individual self-development and politics as separate. And I think they're extremely intertwined. So that's where I see the intersection of social justice and healing, because so much of it is also because of stories that we've been told that are informed by, you know, gender constructs, racial constructs, economic constructs. Makes all perfect sense what you're saying. And it is, it is, there are so many challenges in what you have raised here. Challenges and, and, uh, and facts and, and, and taken things. Uh, where to start? I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess one of the things to, that I want to say is that I, throughout uh, my studies in university, etc., uh, I have met many, many immigrants that, that were studying with me, um, often first generation, uh, second generation, so that, that their moms and dads came in fleeing from whatever uh, system they, they left. And the children were, oh, wow, powerhouses of, mm. of a focus. Uh, in I studied medicine in the University of Heidelberg, so quite a prestigious uh, university. And we had, for example, a, a high Iranian um, contingent mm. there, people who fled the Shah and then Khomeini. And mm. it was, uh, I mean, the, the typically girls that were top of the class were Iranian, were, mm. uh, were of immigrant uh, background. So there is a positive side to that because it creates that crystal clear focus, laser sharp to say, look where we have come from, girl or boy, I never ever want you to be without options. So therefore mm -hmm. work, your, work your guts out, mm -hmm. have five different passports uh, to <laughs> allow you to get anywhere, everywhere, or get out if you need to. So there is that positive spin on things, because we're, I, I want to say that whatever youth we have gone through, whatever our parents have done, they probably have done it in their best intention. They uh -huh. were, many of our parents are broken people themselves, yet, and they had never been in that situation before. So they had, whatever the situation was, they made it up as they went. And they made it up as, the, as they went at the time when there was no internet, when there was no easy access <laughs> to information, when there was not social awareness, where there was not awareness of, of things you can do to improve yourself. So I feel actually at times, I feel really, really sorry uh, for my parents and for the mm -hmm. generations before us, because whilst we now observe everything with the youthful lens of, hey, here, this is how you do it. You know, I have done it. Why can't my parents have done it? And you actually think, damn, put yourself into their shoes and suddenly there's a very different story coming out. And therefore I, I, I applaud you, I commend you on, on actually raising that issue because we keep forgetting that, especially mm -hmm. the younger generations now. It is, uh, it's, it's quite amazing how natural it becomes for, for the next generation down there 
to tap into all the knowledge that they have got with social media, etc., and uh, even consider me a dinosaur. My sons are 18 <laughs> and 19. So just intergenerational going down, damn. So, yeah. but I could talk for hours there, but I want <laughs> you to talk for hours. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, Nisha, it's so great. you had, you developed this kind of, of, of understanding there. And the question though is, how did your healing then start? What were the triggers yeah. or may I ask, why did you need healing? What were the yeah. traumas that you experienced as a younger woman? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, my own journey with having and growing that compassion for my parents who were just trying to survive, where I know have a privilege of education and space to even think about these things is something that I try to remind myself because I used to just have more contempt in a lot of ways for my parents for not understanding things, you know, um, and Growing up, um, even as a teenager, I was always very interested in like self-development and like happiness. How do you become happy? You know, even though, you know, there was, um, you know, I was always grateful. I never felt like there wasn't going to be food on my table or I would never be clothed or anything like that. I was never worried that we wouldn't have a home. And I'm very grateful to my parents for all, always had that sense of security um, and, and stability. But at the same time, I did, I still had a lot of like low self-worth because I just kind of grew up in an environment where I was highly criticized. Um, and my parents, especially my mother, were very perfectionistic. And again, a result of their own things, right? But they pro her projecting it on me became um, very common, especially as I've an older brother, but as being a woman as well. And um, I kind of just grew up always being paralyzed when I had to start something because if it was I wasn't going to start it perfect then how could I start it um and I also kind of grew up in a family where I was the mediator in my family um where there if there was conflict within my family I would be the one who either made a joke or tried to look at everyone's perspective and figure things out and fix things and um I just kind of grew into that role so while I was always, and that kind of bled into my interest in self and people and development and how to, you know, become happy. Um, and, but that has really evolved. Um, I got into a relationship, a couple um, pretty toxic romantic relationships. Um, one especially though was the marriage, you know, I, I'm mar I was married and I'm now divorced. But that relationship um, was with someone who really um, emotionally abused me. Um, he would gaslight me and make me feel like I was always doing something wrong. But I internalized it kind of as how I internalized things from my mother where, well, she's just trying to tell me, you know, what I did wrong so I can be better. So I kind of did the same thing with him. But over the years, I just started realizing that there are better ways to approach giving constructive feedback to someone without like constantly insulting them or telling them that, they're ridiculous or stupid or whatever. And that's a lot of what I got. And there were, there was a lot of emotional abuse and a lot of substance abuse too, within that relationship, um, where a lot of that stuff was prioritized over my needs. And I constantly, constantly adjusted to what he wanted, because if I did what made him happy, it would reduce conflict. And that's kind of also what I did growing up. 
So, um, and that adjusting, um, again, is something that is very socialized for me as being a woman, as also being an Indian woman, that I can't tell you how many conversations I still have with people in my mom's generation where they talk about how the girl has to adjust, adjust, like that's a very common word. And when I talk to my other South Asian friends about it, the women are always like, oh my God, like, you know, it's just like such a common like feeling that they get such a common response where it's like such frustration and, you know, to this word that we have to constantly adjust. And that's what I did. And it basically, you know, the relationship came to a point where I realized, okay, I'm going to actually take a step back and start putting Nisha's needs first. And I realized that when I did that, we just didn't work. Like it, the compatibility wasn't there. And I realized the only reason we were compatible was because I was constantly doing what he wanted. You know, I, I was watching sports with him. I was, you know, friends with his friends. He didn't like my friends. So I started spending less time with my friends, all this stuff to appease him. And once I didn't do that, we really like, I felt like our relationship was empty. And I realized that, you know, what is, is, is toxic as things were with him, I still have to be responsible for my actions or the fact that I adjusted. And I had to think about where did this come from? You know, this feeling that I need to adjust, this feeling that I need to pedestalize this man and this relationship. Why can't we be interdependent instead of me being codependent on him and vice versa. I felt like we were very codependent on each other for validation. And I mean, things also came to a point where I realized when I really showed my power, he was threatened. And he even told me that once that he's threatened by me, you know? So, so for this to work, he had to push me down and I had to accept that. Um, and I just was like done with it, you know, at a certain point where people have often told me how strong I was to leave the relationship, but I all, usually respond that I was too scared to stay in the relationship. It was more fear that if I continue to stay in this relationship, I was going to continue to erase and diminish myself. And I just wasn't okay with that anymore. Um, I, I'd often said like, at first I was too scared to leave the relationship because it still provided me the sense of security. And it fe almost fed into this problem, this toxic pattern that I had, you know, nourished some way ever since I was younger, because I was just so used to it. That was literally how my body was used to responding. But then I was too scared to stay, you know, it kind of just like, I, I've often said that I had one eye open in the relationship and then the other eye opened. And then I, there's no going back, you know, once I knew it's just, you know, I couldn't unsee it essentially. So that started my journey for healing. Um, I felt so liberated after I asked for a divorce. Um, and I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't hard. It was, it was hard to tell this person who I was in a relationship for eight years that I'm done with it, you know, but I also felt so free and that freedom made me realize that, oh my God, there's so much more to life that I could do, you know? And, um, I got divorced in 2014, but it feels like lifetimes ago. I mean, it truly does because I felt like a different person, you know, I don't, barely talk to the people and the friends, um, that I used to talk to on his side. Um, I realized that none of my friends ever liked him, but they just couldn't convince me, you know, cause I had just had my mindset and I just, you know, saw what I had lost and, um, but how wonderful those relationships were. And I, I just neglected them, you know, as well as neglecting myself most importantly. So, um, 
And then, you know, I always kind of, you know, I'm glad that you asked the question at the beginning, like how is social justice and healing related? Because I don't think I quite got to that until the last couple of years, because I was always trying to find the connection because I, I knew it was there, you know, but um, I think it's that intergenerational trauma that, um, and just, you know, how things get passed down through epigenetics, like literally get passed down from generation to generation genetically that kind of tied everything in together because I started learning um, through various books and talking to different coaches and therapists, um, which is another thing, like right when I realized, um, you know, I wanted to divorce my husband, um, I realized that I needed to start seeing a therapist and I needed some help to talk this through. Um, I started seeing how trauma literally lives in your body and your body actually reacts and how we react or try to fight someone or get into that fight or flight or freeze state is very directly related to very early experiences we have with others. And I started reflecting about how those experiences and ways I would react to my ex-husband and or stand down to him was very similar to how I did when I was much younger. And that dynamic just repeated itself in a different relationship, you know, and I needed to do something to change that story to write a new story for myself. Um, and so I started doing that through therapy, but I also actually started literally doing it through writing and through writing essays about my experiences in this relationship. And um, I found so much healing through writing and through expressing myself that way. Um, I mean, I enjoy speaking, but writing, it just, it, it provided me a different space, it, you know, almost to edit myself, but like edit myself was also a way of healing myself, you know? Um, it allowed me to explore different senses. Um, it wasn't just about what I saw. It was about what I felt about, like, I started realizing, you know, when I would be in certain interactions with my ex-husband and my mother, um, and even my brother and my father, you know, how would my body react? Like I, you know, suddenly I would start sweating or I felt really hot, you know, and I was able to write that down and just experience it more fully. Um, and so that really, really, um, kind of just started bringing things together for me. And I, you know, I basically went from there, you know, and I started just getting more into this realm. And the more I wrote, the more people reached out to me expressing how they've had similar experiences and how they're so grateful that I told my story. And not only was that validating for me in terms of, you know, just my writing ability and just getting that validation and compliments, because who doesn't like that? But it just made me glad that like, I'm not alone and others can heal because I'm putting something out there in the world. And what if they put something out there in the world? They can heal more, you know? I just found this like great like domino effect from sharing my story and sharing these struggles that I have had and, you know, continue to have. And I think that's the thing about healing. It's, it's not linear. You know, there's times I still, you know, realize I get back to certain patterns that are harmful, but now I have this awareness of it. And now, like I said before, I can be like radically responsible for myself and for the power that I have. Um, because, you know, regardless, one thing I, I often think about my ex-husband is that hurt people hurt people. And I know that there are many ways that he has been hurt. And I hope for everyone in his life and for himself, that he could find that peace and he could find his own healing. But at the same time, he did hurt me, you know? So, um, and how that also affects me is that because I've been hurt, I could potentially unleash that on other people myself. So I have that responsibility to be aware of my own reactions so I don't harm other people because I've been harmed, you know? And I think we all have that responsibility to increase that awareness of our own patterns and where they come from 
from, you know, our personality, but also from our upbringing, which could also be informed by, um, you know, things that are more politicized and um, other histories in terms of immigration history or, um, you know, people that are refugees, et cetera. So much of it is, um, you know, passed down and informed through those stories. So true. May I ask your ex-husband, was he uh, equally Indian of Indian origin? Yes. Yeah. I forgot to mention that he was, he was Indian and um, from the same state as my parents grew up. Um, and you was know, one a, thing I, was sorry. it an arranged marriage or was it, no, did you meet? We met on like, a, 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 I just thought it still exists. It's called indiandating.com. <laughs> so I think it was in like 2005 um, that we met on a website. Yeah. So we met each other. Um, I, like I said, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. He did too. Um, and our parents like spoke the same language. And I did want that. Like I wanted to be with an Indian person who understood, you know, things hmm. culturally. And, yeah. you know, it was really nice. Um, though since that relationship, um, I haven't been as um, concerned about having that because I realized that I'd rather just have a relationship with someone, Indian or not, that has that respect for me and gives me space to do what I want to do and encourages me to do that instead of puts me down for it. So what, however that might look is however that might look, because I think when there's that interdependence is there and communication patterns, communication channels are open, then it can work. And I have found that with someone and I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. And he isn't Indian, but I, I've also feel like I've been able to share so much of my history and we learn from each other. And I think that's also so beautiful. Um, yeah. Also one thing I completely forgot to mention um, is that right before I separated from my husband, my father died. Um, so, um, and very unexpectedly, we were all on vacation in India actually, and he got sick and um, it just started spiraling down. And within a week of him entering the hospital, he passed away. And I think that's significant in that, um, you know, within a, a year, I, I lost two of the most important male figures in my life, my father and my husband. And um, in a way, you know, while I felt liberated from leaving my husband, like my father's death was obviously much harder for me emotionally, but I've been able to also reflect on those patriarchal structures and what they meant to me and how they affected me. And, um, there's a lot of things actually about my father that I only realized after he's been gone for eight years, you know, um, and in the wake of his death about the, the purpose he served in my life and how it's also affected the romantic partners I've choose. So it's not just my mom, obviously it's going to be everyone in your family and in your background that, um, informs that. And it's such a, such a web of influences that if you want to tease one string of that web out, it's virtually impossible because they are all interlinked. And, uh, and it is, you start toppling one thing and suddenly the whole thing moves and uh, mm -hmm. a set of dominoes comes sort of in mind. But it is a journey that is really, really powerful and really, really important that you do it, that you can try to tease apart why you respond in a certain way. And that is completely irrelevant, what color of skin you have, what is your background, etc. Mm -hmm. It is the 
why are you getting angry with someone who just said something and you could rip his head off and you think where's that coming from <laughs> yeah. and then you think back and actually it, it relates probably to something that happens when you were five years old and <laughs> the way someone made you feel then and you have got mm -hmm. that super period trigger mechanism there that is you know a, a hair trigger literally mm -hmm. that's all you need <laughs> well exactly and that's so important that we actually realize that regardless who we are because 80 percent of our, our actions are determined by our reptilian brain we don't have the time to think uh before these reactions happen mm -hmm. and the only way that you can deal with that is with awareness with mindfulness with acceptance mm -hmm. that this is a fact that you are very much determined by events that happened actually a long time ago and that you might not even recall but it is so important that we actually all all of us go on this journey and see what truly what truly truly makes us tick what truly makes us the people who we are now, mm -hmm. complex, broken, sinners, saints at the same time. Uh, we are all the same. We are all this, this mess inside. And it is so beautiful if something rattles our cage and we start going on this journey. And in your case, it, it set in motion a series of events that essentially led you to now being this, this very different woman compared with the, the girl that, that sought marriage and, and maybe was trying to comply with the expectations of her parents, of her, mm -hmm. um, of her social background, etc. Because it is, we are people pleasers, many of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say the vast majority of guests that come onto my show are people pleasers. Because that's one of the, the critical things that we always want to be there for others. We always put, put ourselves last. Everything else comes first. Mm -hmm. And we're setting ourselves up to fail. And then it's not so uncommon that, that people then end up seeking refuge in not so nice coping mechanisms, such as the alcohol, such as the, the drugs, the gambling, pornography, mm -hmm. eating disorders, all these kind of things that, that take away the pain and maybe give us that little bit of refuge, um, however false it is. Did you fall into that, that pitfall? I oh, yeah, definitely. I'm glad you brought up people pleasing because that's kind of when I was talking about adjusting that's exactly what it was I would adjust because when I would adjust it would make the other person happy and it would validate me mm. as a human being and if they were happy then I felt good because I was basically taught that that's what I needed to do and I think that's something that is you know I'm not a parent but um, I, I think that's something that's challenging about parenting is that you know um, demanding um, obedience from kids um, I think Obedience is different than like a mutual respect for each other. Um, and I'm not saying that's easy. I don't think parenting is easy at all. But um, I felt like I was taught obedience. I was taught that if I asked why, like I need to shut up. Like don't ask why. It's because I said so, you know. So, you know, I, I, you feel like you don't have power. So what I do have power is to do something to make you happy. And if that, then you accept me 
then great. Um, and I started realizing that I would start saying yes. When I would say yes to people, I would often be saying no to myself. And by saying no to myself, that means I didn't have any worth, you know? Um, so I'm very careful now if I'm saying yes to someone, am I taking something away from myself for any decision I make, no matter how small, because it really allows me to have that awareness for, um, how much I'm adjusting versus compromising. I think that it could be different. I feel like compromise has more of an equal exchange, right? Um, there's from both ends and there's that open discussion, but adjusting means that I'm just, you know, I'm just going to adjust and I'm just going to do whatever, you know, it, it takes to make you happy. And that was very similar for my relationship with my mom and with my relationship um, with my husband. And, you know, one thing that I prided when I was young was that I was very um, successful academically. So getting good grades was another thing for me that I would be so upset if I didn't get a good grade because one, it's that perfectionistic part of me. And two, that was like the one thing that I had for myself was my academic achievement. So if I didn't do good in that, like I really didn't know what else I had. I didn't feel like I was that great in sports. Like I was, I had done some musical things, but it just wasn't my thing. So this is, this was my bread and butter. So if I couldn't do that, I didn't know what worth I had. And, um, that still follows me, you know, to be honest, like I, I do find myself still kind of wanting that ego boost, but I realize that that isn't everything and that there's so much more to my worth than just that. <laughs> I'm laughing because you just spoke out of my soul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, it is, uh, I validated myself exactly in the same way. There was very poor self-worth, very poor for, I had a very low self-esteem as a, as a youngster mm -hmm. and my father, my stepfather actually one day said, Hey, look, um, every time you're best in class in a test, I give you $5. Mm -hmm. Every time you're second best, you get $2 and anything thereafter. Now forget it. Yeah. And up until that point, I was quite mediocre, uh, to say the least. Um, I, I guess I made my own expectations come true and suddenly I applied to myself and within no time was I best at class in virtually every everything and uh, very quickly there was a bill of hundred dollars or so uh, uh, that I said come on uh, and my stepfather said I actually don't have that money um, you completely surprised me here <laughs> uh, but I, that didn't matter anymore. I suddenly had this validation that I had never received in any other way. Mm. And I was suddenly feeling good about myself. And I remember actually, it's weird, now that I think back at when I was 12, somewhere that, I remember that rush of dopamine and adrenaline of feeling good about myself nearly in the same way that a glass of wine later on would give mm. me the same the same rush so that's that's intriguing to have that insight um bloody hell guys so if you ever wonder what you should do in your spare time you already got two things that
that comes out of this this interview here, number one, is journaling and writing essays, because mm -hmm. that's what helped Nisha, and that's certainly, again, again, through my life, has, has been an interesting journey. And secondly, why not do a host a show? Because suddenly you expect to, to bring information out, out of your guests, Inevitably, in every single bloody interview I run, suddenly there's this ah moment <laughs> where suddenly something clicks. Why do I say that? I say that not because I want to encourage you to do a show, unless of course you want to. Uh, I say that because talking to someone about these very powerful emotions and, and things that are happening well below the surface is so important. And that's exactly where the role of a life coach comes in. That's where the role of a, a psychologist comes in, of a counselor, mentor, sponsor, whatever the setting is. You talk about things and suddenly by you either writing them down, talking about them, having a discussion over a coffee, you suddenly get that oh moment and yeah. that's so powerful that's so powerful because you're you're lifting things out of the murkiness of your brainstem and suddenly it becomes clear and suddenly you get this insight and you think no surprise that i always respond this way when that happens yeah. so and that's so beautiful when you when you when you started realizing that this relationship was on the fritz that you you literally had had to to move forward uh however painful it would be um you sought counseling uh mm -hmm. was it a counselor or was it a life coach who did help you sure i started seeing a therapist um so it was someone who you know went to school and whatnot for it um the funny thing is I actually do coaching as well, um, but I've also gotten a lot of coaching from other coaches. And um, it's actually been in this last year working with coaches that I feel like I've really made breakthroughs regarding this trauma and what you were talking about with like the reptilian brain, understanding how things are stored and how we react and what the actual like neuroscience is about it and how the nervous system is attached to it has been like mind blowing for me and so helpful. Though with that being said, um, like standard talk therapy was also very helpful because it just helps to get it out, you know? And, um, I actually, I, I'm not even sure if I mentioned this, but I do have a podcast yeah. and where I talk to other Asian people from Asian backgrounds and talk about how, their story of migration informs the, the work that they do. And so often this comes up to this, lots of things around people pleasing, lots of things about making your parents happy, being obedient. So, and that those connections with people, um, you know, relating that back to the, the nervous system, it provides not just validation, but it provides that feeling of co-regulation where you feel safe with someone because you're having that connection. And because we're humans, we're social beings. We are meant to be connected with other people through common experiences, through touch, all these things that I think people are realizing more and more now with the pandemic when we are now not able to do those things, right? Um, or at least not as much. We're, we're more restricted from doing it. And um, 
I was joking with someone the other day that I'm like, oh my God, I just can't wait till I could be in some crowded room where I'm like bumping into (laughs) someone else's sweat or like at a concert. Like I like things that it would be so annoying before that I'm like, oh, I like crave it because it's so helpful, like just to have that human touch, you know? And um, so even in these conversations, it's like we get these like really nice, happy feelings within us because we're having these common experiences and connections where we're helping each other. And um, so often I think society and societal norms and capitalism honestly makes us feel like we have to work, work, work and do everything on our own and succeed. But it's actually through collaboration and through altruism that we really connect and feel joy, you know? And when I really think about things um, in my life and I think about those happy moments, and it's usually things that are connected with somebody else, you know, like when someone made me laugh, when my dad said this one thing to me, things that I'm realizing more and more now that he's gone, like those are the emotionally latent moments that are sticking in my heart and my mind, you know, and um, those are the things that I think are so, so important and we can have without being necessarily in a toxic, codependent, people-pleasing relationship, it's possible. But it really does take that work and that um, emotional and mental awareness to get there. And I think that awareness is so important to be able to step outside of yourself and, and look what is really going on. I think that was the biggest breakthrough ever in my life in rehab when I learned to press the pause button and step outside of myself and the first time that happened it was literally like an out-of-body experience and it was spooky and it was strange Mm. but suddenly I could observe my own reaction to something my wife had said and which normally would have triggered a third world war in in, (laughs) amongst the two of us and suddenly I was just I didn't say a word and it was it was bizarre it was just bizarre and I cherished that moment when it manifested like a miracle literally because from then on I sought that happening again and again and I learned Mm. to trigger that myself to actually recognize that wave of anger or resentment or sadness something washing over me and these kind of things rather than following emotionally through and whatever with whatever emotion it is i've learned to recognize whoa there's a wave coming stop what is happening where is it coming from what is really happening and that has been the most beautiful 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 thing so yeah. guys out there please 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 try to to develop that mindfulness and and the, our words sometimes can sound so corny and so so <laughs> cliched uh, but it is that that beautiful insight of how our deep deep subconscious mind drives us in virtually everything we are doing mm-hmm. and once you make that connection once you accept that and learn how to observe it and then make adjustments because you still get the same waves coming through you can't just now say wow i'm mindful therefore 
this wave will not happen again. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Nice try. Yeah. You still get triggered. You still have the same, the same, the same thoughts or the same pathological weird links happening. Yeah. But you can start recognizing them to say, well, actually, I thank you very much for that wave, but I don't think that suits me right now. Mm, I don't yeah. think it would be so good to rip this patient's head off and and, <laughs> uh, and tell him really what I think about it. <laughs> no, I don't think as a doctor I would be a bit in trouble there, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, he deserves it because he's an asshole. But, <laughs> but no, don't do it. So right. it's these kind of things. So I'll give you one example. And, and the other thing I want to say, though, is uh, it's... Uh, Yes, there is often we are quite broken and we are quite messed up in our head. But don't forget that other people out there, A, they are broken people too, most of us. But there are some people who are really, really not so nice. So <laughs> the 10% the of people with, social, uh, with uh, personality disorders, mm -hmm. um, the 1% of the population, the 1 in 100 that are sociopaths and psychopaths. So Guys, it is not necessarily always your fault that you're triggered. Okay, so yeah, but it's good to to be able to tease that apart, isn't it? And Nisha, I'm, I'm so grateful that you came on uh, today because you you actually highlighted this complex web of 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 things that drive us nowadays, and so many factors that many of us don't actually consciously recognize and realize mm -hmm. yet they are driving them you were pointing out to the to the social factors and and your background it would be interesting to actually see what your dna test really shows <laughs> have you ever done one no, I haven't actually. I've, I've been curious about it, but I feel like usually those are those like ancestry ones where That's I'm like, right. oh, I know, but like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's still a lot of like anglicized influence within Absolutely. India. That's probably part in my blood and I just don't know yeah. it, you know, so. Exactly. You might yeah, be definitely. amazed. As, as far as I was yeah. concerned, if I was the boss of a country, uh, I would make everyone, absolutely everyone, make them do a DNA test. And the yeah. reason I say that is, uh, there are people out there who are so, oh, I am whatever, mm. whatever yeah. group they like to be in. And chances mm -hmm. are, they're not. They're not. <laughs> no. So I thought I'm German through and through. What else can I be? Oh, yeah, my DNA test rather gave me some surprises there where I thought, okay, who played with grandma? Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and that's beautiful because. If a war was to break out, I look at my DNA test and I said, well, who the hell shall I fight for? Um, I'm sitting on, in both camps here, um, at least from a genetic background. So I can't mm -hmm. say I'm German, therefore I will be whatever. No, mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. So therefore, it's, it's quite intriguing to, to open that door. So if you open Pandora's box of looking into your background and say, well, okay, there are the influences that drove me from my Indian heritage point of view. It might be interesting to then say, actually, all intriguing. Uh, yes, Indian heritage, by the way, that's only 79%. 21% is... Da -da! <laughs> right. No, definitely. It would be interesting. <laughs> Just the thought. The other yeah. thing I want to say here on this mm -hmm. show, on this show, Nisha doesn't know it yet, but she will write a book. 
Yes. Yes, she will. <laughs> yes, she will. She's yes. written all these essays. Mm. And uh, I can't wait to read that book. Come on, put them together and, and teach us all because there is, you've got a very important voice there that I think many, many people of, of various immigration backgrounds want to, to hear and want to read. Tell us, uh, in the interim, whilst we can't yet read your book, um, <laughs> where can they find your podcast? What, what is sure. the name of your podcast? Yeah, my podcast, is, my podcast is called Migrations. So it's M-I-G-R-A-S-I-A-N-S. So it's kind of like a, a play on migrations with Asians. Um, and it's on all of the major um, you know, podcast apps. So you could find that. I just recorded my first season. So that's done. And I plan to start next season with a more of a focus actually on healing stories amongst Asian immigrants. Um, so that's one place. And you can also follow me on Instagram. My handle is at he, um, healing hype girl. Um, that's kind of what I call myself. I'm all about like hyping people up about healing because I think it's so important and it's so powerful. Yeah. And you were saying that you're a life coach yourself. So how can yeah. people find you in that capacity? Yeah, I do a lot of content on my Instagram, so that's a good place. But my website is um, www.nishaland.com. Um, so you could find me there um, and you could look at what services I have, which I'll be changing some things up soon, but you could just stay tuned. Um, it's probably also a good idea to get on my email list, which you can get on through my website as well, because I provide the latest updates there for my coaching services and other offerings. So yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Nisha, I'm so grateful that you came onto my show. I, I was looking forward to that. And it is lovely to shine the spotlight onto those, those deep hidden links that are so important that drive us in the background. So thank you so much for coming onto my show. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. I really, really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. You guys out there, Look after yourself. I hope we've planted a few seeds for you to reevaluate your own life, your own relationships, your own background. And I wish you a fantastic time until the next interview. Look after yourself. Bye. Bye. <laughs>